coffee. What is it about coffee that makes it so damn good? Maybe it's the smell of coffee brewing that brings back that new to recovery feeling that we got when we first stepped into a meeting. Maybe it's the idea of holding on to one of the only things that still works for kickstarting our day. Maybe it's the way it brings us together, another one of the many things we have in common. Whatever it is, we in the recovery community love our coffee. And why not? Coffee is fuel. Coffee is love. Coffee is life. That's what makes Brainwash Coffee the perfect partner for us here at the Other Side of Hell podcast. Not only is every flavor of Brainwash Coffee mastered and handcrafted by obsessive minds who won't stop until they've gotten it just right, but 50% of all coffee proceeds go back into the recovery community to help those who may still be suffering, which makes Brainwash Coffee a no-brainer. My personal favorite is the higher powder. It's dark, smoky, and rich, and gives me just enough kick to really get into my day. Right now, you can go to brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code OTHERSIDE for 20% off your coffee purchase. Clean your bean with Brainwash. We at the Other Side of Hell podcast are not therapists, doctors, or counselors. We're just two guys who have been through hell and come out the other side. Please be aware, we may talk about drinking and drugging in detail. Anyone struggling with addiction may find this triggering. Our goal is to share our stories, explore our struggles, and connect with others through our experience. Remember, we are not alone. There is hope, and together we can get better. What's up, world? I'm Willie. And I'm Cameron. Welcome to the Other Side of Hell podcast. Yeah, welcome. We rolling? I don't care. Whatever yeah. you want to do. Are we, we rolling? We got no five count. We just roll right into it. Cameron, you look good. Really? What's going on with you? Mm, today's a good day. Good. That's awesome. Let's talk about this topic you know that what, we're going to have. Like, you, can't just, <laughs> you can't just ask me questions and then don't care. <laughs> I do care. Do you? Yeah. All right. This is, this, is, this is good stuff, man. I'm excited to be back. I was a little uh, groggy. You know, for those of, uh, of you who have been following us on Instagram, the way that we shoot the show, like we'll shoot, record, edit, produce release right anybody that's that's familiar with it we did our first uh live today instagram live and during the during the pre-setup and it was good yeah it went well yeah you know it helped us roll into our topic that we're going to be talking about today which is boundaries boundaries is an important one and we got it from our war story which you're going to want to stick around and listen to from jonathan it's a good one yeah He's got a YouTube channel. He's a, he's a he's got a, a prison YouTube channel. And Jonathan's story is action packed. Yeah, he's been through some shit. Dude, I felt like yeah. I was like I I felt like I wanted to like retreat to a van. Like, <laughs> just where's a van? I gotta find a van. <laughs> where's get to the chopper? Get to the chopper. Yeah, a lot of a lot in there, man. You know that's what we go through in this. You know I'm a, I'm nine years sober now. You're over five years sober, and our lives were chaotic. Mm. They're fucking nuts and learning how to set boundaries in sobriety was, was a little bit tricky, Challenging. If, you, if you will, like yeah. finding the right thing to do and, and how to keep your vision for yourself and stay the course of sobriety and, and, you know, finding that new way of life without feeling like a fuck, you know, like sometimes doing the right thing makes you feel bad. Like there's some. It's weird for me, you know, cause we've talked yeah. about all these things, you know, people pleasing, right. You know, um, like all those things kind of play a part into how we feel 
in those moments. And in early sobriety, it's really difficult to set boundaries because in active addiction, the boundary line was so skewed. Like, well, it was so movable, right? Yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, is like your thinking is so affected that it's hard to tell like who your real friends are. Like, yeah. like no, like I don't want to set boundaries. They're my friends. Like, yeah. You know, now like looking back in retrospect, you can see clearly like you, you were acquainted through a similar passion, mm -hmm. which was drugs and alcohol, you know, but these people were not necessarily your, your friends or my friends anyways. Yeah. A lot know, of like, them. Yeah. And so it's hard to, it's hard to know like, okay, like what, who, who do I set boundaries with? Like, I, I still want this person in my life, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, but do I have to cut them out because I'm, you know, I'm quitting and they're not and. Well, you know, like the sad reality is like, yeah, you might. And it takes some experimenting. Like we talked about this before this, this show, like it, it's not easy to know what, what it is you have to do. And, and sometimes you have to see what works and what doesn't. And sometimes yeah. the process of finding out what doesn't work can be really, really painful. And I think, you know, we, we had, uh, we had somebody join us this morning who, had not set those boundaries and she was sort of dealing with a relapse. And yeah. so that's, that's the reality of, of boundary setting is that, you know, it's so, so crucial because it can lead to that, that detriment and, and, and that, uh, that moment that we've all been, you know, we've all, we've all had that moment. What, what moment? a relapse or, or close to like, yeah, yeah. like you and I have for mm -hmm. sure. You know, I know that's not, everybody's story but it, it's really 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 common yeah it's yeah really yeah. really common and there's there's those those few people that put it down and never picked it back up um mm -hmm. but obviously there were some boundaries set that were maintained you know because if there weren't there would have been a relapse or continuation in in the active addiction lifestyle and so you know we got some really good feedback from them and what what brings up you know, what, what I start thinking of is like, what are, what are some of the things that you found early on as far as like what boundaries you needed to set and how did you come up with, with what those were? Cause for me, just real quick, like one of them, I had to listen to what successful people in sobriety were doing. Right. Right. I had to, I had to shut the fuck up and mm -hmm. listen to them. Cause automatically, like I want to, I want to hold on to my old way of living as much as I can while letting go of all the things that aren't serving me. Right. Like I loved using and drinking, but it was causing me a lot of pain through like legal, legal shit, you know, breaking the law all the time, hurting the people that love me, self harm, physical, physical violence, and like hurting myself physically, the insides, the, the emotional part was so dark and, but I still wanted to use and drink. And so like, I'm like, now I'm like, want to get sober. Right. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to set a boundary with using and drinking, but I still want to go to the fucking crack house and hang out with my buddy. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I like, like kind of think And that's not uncommon, you know? So like, right. what was it for you? Because that had to stop for me. And so listening to the people that were before me saying like, you got to cut ties with some of these people, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, but what was it for you? Well, and I think early on, especially like it, it was really important for me to recognize, you know, like what the, the friends that were alcoholics and the friends that were drinkers. Yeah. You know, like I had, I had some friends who, who would drink on occasion that were not alcoholic and they definitely wanted what was in my best interest, you know? And so one of the things that I had to do early on was like decide which friends, I 
I do need to cut ties with and which friends I may need to just stay away from temporarily, yeah. you know, because it's not necessarily something that in, in that instance with those friends and with me in particular, like that I had to disconnect myself from permanently, but it was not a good idea for me to go around these people while they're drinking, mm-hmm. you know, like, like, first of all, like it, they, they don't have the problems that I, that I have for them. It's still fun. Right. So when I, when I see them doing it, they still make it look fun. Yeah. And I still want to believe that part of me that, that can have well, fun wanna, with it. I want to have fun. Yeah. You, you just look like you're having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it's fun, but it wasn't, you know, it was right. definitely not fun. And so, um, so for me, it was definitely a matter of determining like, okay, who is and who isn't, you know, actively out for my best interest yeah. and, and really, you know, drawing a line around those people to the point where I knew if they were just people that I had to steer clear from temporarily, or if they were people that were probably not going to be in my life anymore, Mm -hmm. you know? And so cutting out people, I think was a big one. Yeah. It it was difficult, right? Yeah. yeah. But cause it's not like, I mean, there are some people that we hate, but it's not like we hated the people that we had to let go of. Like we just weren't good for each other anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a lot of them that are alcoholic the way that I'm alcoholic, you know, I can look back now and see that they were, they were in a lot of pain as well, Yeah, you know, and it brings up the good point where, you know, another person that was on the live today mentioned, you know, that respect line, mm. you know, and so, you know, boundaries bring respect and mm. people respect those boundaries for the most part. And so like setting those boundaries with those people and being like, look, I, I can't, or, you know, and you, you don't necessarily, cause I didn't, it's not like I went to, sorry, I, blah, 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 blah. it's not like you have to explain to all these people what's going on. Right. Mm. Especially the people that are out there in the street still selling dope, your drug dealer. Yeah. You know? It doesn't need to be a conversation. <laughs> the, the, you don't have to go to the bartender and be like, look, I like I, you, you know, as a I, person I, I've been here for a really long time. That's you know, save my seat or whatever. You don't have to explain to all these people what's going on. Right. With you you yeah. know, you don't, you can, you can set those boundaries by not showing back up in those places. But as time goes on, they see you in sobriety and automatically there's that respect. Mm-hmm. And then there's some people that you do need to explain those things to, you know, for, for right now, this is a time in my life where I'm really working on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, my drinking's got out of hand, you know, you can be honest with people that love you and they can stand back and really respect the fact that you see that there's a problem. Cause they all fucking see it anyway. Right. Everybody, all, all of, all of my drinking friends versus my alcoholic friends, all of my drinking friends or non-drinking friends, like normies, if you will, they all right. fucking knew I had a problem. They were telling me all the fuck you need to calm down. But right. You know, and, and so some of those people you do need to explain it to some people you don't, but those are boundaries that you need to set and figure out. And then the other thing too is places, you know, Mm. where are these places that you just don't need to go anymore? Yeah. Right. And I've had to do that not only in, in sobriety with, with drugs and alcohol. Like I don't, I don't need to go to a trap house for any reason. Right. Right. None. And and so for me to, and and for me to, to think I need to go to the dealer's house and be respectful and explain to them. It's just asinine. That's my disease working against me. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And, and I needed other alcoholics. I needed to be in a place where sobriety was happening so that that could be explained to me. But not only in 
sobriety and recovery do I need to sever places, but with my food consumption as well, because that's something that I struggle with and right. I'm, I'm on that too, you know? So there's certain restaurants and places that I can't go to certain sections of the store without being triggered. Mm-hmm. And so we stay out of the liquor aisle, right? We yep. stay out of the fucking, the bakery <laughs> the yeah. grocery store. Mm-hmm. As, as, as funny as that sound, like I don't go down the candy aisle right? and I don't go down the beer aisle. You know, right. if I do, if I do, it's for a specific purpose and I've, I've set those boundaries up, you know, but people will respect that about you if, if you maintain that course, right. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we need when people respect us, we tend to respect ourselves because there's some action involved that creates that respect. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's a real, that's a really good point. Like, because I, I think that one of the things that we, we try to be and, 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 it's hard to know sometimes how to be, how to help others. And sometimes the best way to help others is to be an example. Yeah. And so I think by setting boundaries, we're, we're, we're sort of setting a precedence with those people around us and they're able to see like, okay, look at this dude. Like he is not afraid to, you know, like put up those walls with, with some people that he may have been really close with because those people, you know, drain, drain, or bring around negative energy or they're not a good influence or, you know, they don't want what's best for him. And he's able to recognize, you know, like that, that those things do not serve him and thus mm-hmm. draw a line. Like that's very admirable. I wish I could be like that. Maybe I'll talk to that dude and see, you know, like there's, there's no telling like what effect, what positive effect it may have on somebody yeah. by, by setting those boundaries. And so I think that, you know, the fact that it brings respect is, 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 beautiful like, yeah for sure how could it not yeah and and boundaries keep us safe right like mm-hmm. like having boundaries if, if there's a reason they put fences up around cliffs and shit right <laughs> Cause, yeah because we can get distracted mm-hmm. you know and so if we have if we have safety nets and and we have well-established boundaries within our lives in all areas you know like like with spending, you know, like, like perhaps there's some things that you just will not spend your money on because it causes problems in your life. Yeah. You know, you know having these things established, uh, are important because they keep us safe. Right. And, and getting rid of certain things like, like we, I don't necessarily always get to decide what my triggers are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I can get triggered by the air in the room or, or something like that. But there's also things that I could hold on to that I don't necessarily need to like a bong, you know, right. Like, well, I really, right. this is a really nice bong. I spent, I spent a lot, lot of money, money on, on it. it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. like I'm not planning, not planning on using it, but it's probably a good idea to just get rid of it, you know? And so setting boundaries, you know, what we were talking about with people, places and things yeah. is, is a really good idea in any stage of sobriety. If it's causing triggers or, you know, that that's going to cause a trigger or a craving mm-hmm. or something like that. Like we get rid of those things. We get them out of our lives for as long as we need to have them out of our lives. Now I'm not necessarily affected by a bong today. I don't have them in my house. I wouldn't buy one, but if I right. saw one, I don't have any intention of picking it up for any reason at all because yeah. I'm scared to death of what will happen if mm-hmm. I relapse, yeah. like, like yeah. relapse scares the fuck out of me. Mm-hmm. And the the young lady on the, on the call this morning was was kind of a perfect example of that where her family had set boundaries yeah right and that's one of the things that we as alcoholics have a really difficult time is respecting other people's boundaries right and so I think that's a good 
a, a good direction to take this conversation to is like respecting others' boundaries with and in regards to our sobriety and addiction, right? Yeah, like we, I mean, I, I don't think it's fair for us to, to be surprised when that happens, especially when <laughs> like we're in our active addiction. And I, I, I know speaking for myself, like I could, I could begin to feel those boundaries being formed with, with my Ooh. family, you know, like oh. all of a sudden, you know, like I could sense because they're your family, you know them yeah. well enough, right? I could sense that, that there was this, uh, this underlying sort of step backwards. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean I can't borrow 20 bucks? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it hurt. And for me, Ugh. like that was one of those moments where I was like, okay, like I, I've got to do something. Mm. I'm going to lose them. You yeah. Know? And, and, and rightly so. Like I, how could I be mad at them for that? You know? Right. But you were right in, in, in my drunken and intoxicated, like intoxicated state. Of course I was yeah. like, I, I was definitely resentful. Um, but you know, I could also, it's weird because there was a part of me that resented it and a part of me that totally understood yeah. it. Yeah. The know? duality of yeah. the disease mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I, I, I really appreciate that you said that because I think that that is important. Like there are going to be those people in our lives and, and, and this can happen now. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. to say that this doesn't happen now. Like I was actually talking to a, a sponsee the other day who just has this, this person that he works with who, for whatever reason, they just don't jive. And that's going to happen. Like mm-hmm. there's going to be people that I encounter and I have people like this now where for whatever reason, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with me. Just my energy level and their energy level do not mesh. Right. You know? And for whatever reason, there is just like this weird underlying tension whenever I'm around that individual. And so like, I just avoid that person, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm being rude. It doesn't, you know, like there's no reason for me to put myself in a situation where I'm going to feel, you know, a certain way. Like if it's a negative way and I am able to avoid it, then I can avoid it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that's okay. Like with this particular person, they work in the same space. And so it's like, it's a little bit harder to avoid, but at least understanding and recognizing, okay, there's nothing wrong with him. Like, you know, like, the more I begin to think that I need to ter- teach that person a lesson by, you know, the way that I interact with them, like you can't behave that way. Well, they can, and they will. And like, yeah. the only thing I can do is just choose how I, I, I'm going to react to it. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, sort of setting that boundary in the way of like how I'm going to feel or how I'm going to react is another, you know, variable to, to this whole conversation is like, not only do I get to set boundaries with my behavior and my actions, but I also have to get to set boundaries with how I'm going to react to certain things. Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to allow you to steal my serenity. And in that instance where I want to react instead of respond, I'm going to step away. Like, it doesn't mean that I'm perfect or that I do that all the time, but I can tell you that, like, if I'm in a situation where I can avoid that conflict, I'll definitely do it. Yeah. So for sure. I think it's, I think it's important. And what you, what you were talking about made me think of this, like a true boundary isn't movable. Right. And so if, if, if you have set a boundary and you fudge from that boundary, then it's not a boundary. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, I've, yeah, I've heard, I've heard it said, uh, in, uh, the book extreme ownership, he talks about, you know, we, it's not about what we preach. It's about what we tolerate. Right. Mm. And so, um, we, we can allow these certain things into our lives to a certain point, but 
convincing yourself that you have a boundary that you don't, right? You have to take a real honest look at whether that is your boundary. Is that your stopping point or is it not your stopping point? And, and what that will generally look like. And I know this from my own experience is like, I will set a boundary and I'll, I'll, I'll set a, I'll set a pretend boundary and say, okay, your mind. Yeah. And I do this, like, I'm really, I'm getting really good at this with my business, right? Because my, my price is a certain price. Mm -hmm. Uh, it costs a certain amount to do whatever the project is that I'm doing. There's the cost of the material. There's the cost of the labor. There's the cost of overhead and there's the profit that are, that are involved, you know, and I have to go, okay, like this is the cutoff point for this job. I cannot, if I, if, if I budge from this number, then I'm not making my bottom line. And then the job doesn't seem like, like, like it's going to be worth doing. And so what I've done in the past, a lot of times is be like, well, this is, this is, this is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And then they'll pull on my heartstrings or whatever. Right. And, right. and now all of a sudden I've cut off the profit. Like, okay, I can do it and still make my wage and still make my overhead and still pay for the material and, and, and the labor in it. But now there's no profit. Right. right? So, so that's not a true boundary. The mm -hmm. boundary is all these things involved. Right. And so the boundary is I do not go and eat at a bar. <laughs> right. That's right. the boundary. Mm -hmm. I do not go to a friend's house that I know is going to be drinking and using while they're there. Like mm -hmm. that's the boundary, right? I do not get into relationships with people that are in their alcoholism or drug addiction, right? That's the boundary, you know? And, and so like setting that boundary, it cannot be movable or else it's not a boundary. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, an, it's an idea. It's a goalpost, I guess. If right. you're like, like I would like to be the guy that doesn't, doesn't go to crack houses is <laughs> a good place to start, mm -hmm. you know, but that doesn't necessarily make it a boundary. And so you have to own your boundaries and you have to establish those based on how well that's going to keep you safe. Right. And, and how is that going to make you feel? Because what ends up happening and I, and you, you can jump in on this. What ends up happening is if I set an invisible boundary and I go, okay, I'm going to let you this close. And then you get that close and I move the boundary right? I move the boundary line and you progress past that. All of a sudden I'm resentful at you for crossing that invisible line. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and probably resentful towards myself. Like that, that would be yeah. the other part of it is like, dang, I caved so easy. <laughs> dang. I, I, you know, I, I set this boundary and then I did not hold to it. Yeah. I've done that. So then, you know, I'm stuck in self-condemnation and I begin, you know, criticizing myself and, and then the inner dialogue just Mm -hmm. takes off with that and runs with it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm justifying negative behavior to deal with that feeling. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, and you brought up a great point, like, like that negative dialogue. Right. And here's the thing I want everybody to understand from, from my experience is that inner dialogue is going to happen anyway. Right. Right. It is uncomfortable to maintain a boundary. It is especially a new boundary with people that are used to being able to go a certain distance with you or, you know, seeing you at a certain place, like, like we're going out to Tiffany's tonight and you're like, well, I don't go there anymore. And then they get upset. And like, what do you mean? You, you can't go and just drink water. And you're like, right. no, I can't go and just drink water. Right. And then they're upset. And now for me, that conversation has been extremely uncomfortable in the mm -hmm. past because I want to make everybody happy. I want right. to be available for everybody. 
And then I have alcoholism on top of that. So I also want to take care of myself and make it about me. And so that boundary, maintaining that boundary is going to be uncomfortable no matter whether you keep it or cave in it, right? You're going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But ultimately what ends up happening is you maintain your safety, right? We're going out to Tiffany's. I can't go. Conversation goes the same way. You go, okay, I appreciate that, but I'm not going. I'm sorry it hurts your feelings. I'm not going. Conversation ends. You're uncomfortable. You've maintained your safety, and the person that's asked you to go will either eventually see that and respect you for it or get resentful and get drunk over it or whatever it is they're going to go do. Yeah. They'll deal with it their mm-hmm. own way. But you've maintained your safety, and you've established your boundary point. This is my boundary point, and it makes it a little bit easier the next time. Right? Yeah, to, yeah. You know, to the point where like now you have some boundaries that are really easy for you to keep. Right. Yeah. Well, because all that stuff compounds on each other, right? Like I'm able to set this boundary for this, like for the, the, you know, places like you're talking about. I'm able to at least say that I will not go here in these, in these circumstances under these conditions. Um, and I have my own reasons for that and you don't need to understand them. Like they're, they're my, they're my reasons. And I just appreciate it if you respect them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then it does become easier and easier to do, to set the next boundary. Like, you know, food for you wasn't always a thing, but you knew how to set those boundaries because you'd done it with alcohol, mm-hmm. you know? And then when you realized that you got to a point where you also needed to set up some boundaries or establish some of those same principles with food, you were better equipped to do it because you'd done it before. Right. And so I think that, you know, the other thing with setting boundaries is that we'll get better at this as time goes. And yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not always going to be an easy thing to do. And for me, it's, it's, it's not always easy to, 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 to know what the boundary is that I need to set, but I'll know that I need to set some sort of boundaries there. You know, like I, I'm thinking specifically of just relationships in my life because sometimes it's hard when it's like family members. It's like, okay, well, what is my boundary? Like, I'm not going to go around them or I'm not going to like, you know, interact with them one-on-one or, you know, like I'm not going to be around them if they're drinking. Like what exactly is the boundary? Like I, I may know that a boundary needs to be set, but I may not always know exactly what that boundary needs to be. And so we can, you know, like we can go through this process of experimenting with that as long as we're like, in my case, I'm thinking like, as long as I'm not doing it alone and, you know, I, I'm talking with somebody and saying like, okay, here's my thoughts. This person triggers me. They're, you know, a family member. And I typically would go spend some time with them on this holiday um, this is what I'm thinking. I want to, I'm thinking that I want to go unless they're drinking. If they're drinking, I'll leave. Like, this is the boundary that I'll set. And I can go and experiment with that, mm-hmm. you know, and then go and see how it rides out. Like, and then, you know, maybe I'll come back and say, okay, I can't go around that person at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and yeah, like, and or, change the boundary. Like, yeah. Or, or as time goes on, maybe it's like, okay, maybe I can like be around them in certain yeah. situations, you know, like, because, the boundaries are going to be temporary in some things, depending on what's going on up here in my head, you know, like what, what kind of state am I in right now? Like what, where's my foundation at? Like, am I, am I working a solid program? Like, am, am I feeling, you know, tight and am I feeling, you know, like, like I've got, you know, I've, I've got a good foundation at the moment. Like if not, then it's probably like, if I'm feeling shaky or rattly, then it's definitely not a good idea for me to go down that 
candy aisle at the grocery store. Right. You know, like in any circumstance. But if I'm also, if I'm feeling confident and good, like, and there's a reason for it, it's like, okay, you know what? It's like, fine. Like things are going well right now. Like, I think it's probably okay. Like, and I can go down and then take the appropriate action based on my reaction at that time. Yeah. Yeah, Having a plan, right? Like, like for all these situations, when you're, when you're in early sobriety, you hear about it. And, and as you gain a program and you get kind of, kind of seasoned to this new way of life, those things you, you're right because, you know, uh, setting a boundary, experimenting with that boundary mm-hmm. and then adjusting that boundary with evidence and, and some, some proof behind it, some experimentation behind it is probably okay. You know, so, so earlier I said like boundary is a line that does not get crossed, like start there. Right. You know, and do just exactly what you just said mm-hmm. before you move that boundary. Right, right. Right. Like don't just, don't just fall over it just because you're in that situation. Yeah. Like, like go into, go into these things with a plan and, and being around people, being around places and being around things. It's a good idea to, to know that there's going to be some triggers, know that there's going to be some cravings, know that there's going to be some emotions, know that maintaining your boundaries is going to be hard, but know that it can be done. It's mm-hmm. a winnable fight and it's a worthy fight. Like mm-hmm. it's something that you can do that can really, um, produce some, some longevity in your life, right? It can really produce some happiness and confidence and it can really, uh, put you on a path to a better way of living within those boundaries that you set for yourself, which is so important because in active addiction, everything was off the cuff. Yeah. You know, there was no plan for anything other than to get loaded and how I, how I got that. The boundary line was just fucking non-existent. Yeah. Not your bound. I didn't respect your boundaries and I didn't respect my own. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was in danger from, from what I am when, when I'm in that space, you know, so boundaries are, are the shit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think, you know, I'm reminded of a couple of things. One is that, uh, I, I just remember Smitty's corner, um, Chris, Uh uh, and he joined the show. He came on and told his war story. And one of the things that he had said is that he was a big, he was big in the hockey community and that the hockey community was always like, partying like drinking smoking weed like whatever the case was and that he he uh he didn't want to give up that lifestyle because that was his dream but he recognized along the way that he had a problem with drugs and alcohol you know so he said specifically that uh you know you're you're you hang around the barber shots so long you're gonna get a haircut Mm -hmm. you know and so he had to step away from that period yeah. You know, um, and of course I respect that and I look up to that. And so, you know, like there's a very prime example of that in effect, but I just really like that saying you, you stay around a barbershop so long, you're going to get a haircut. Yeah. So it's like, Oh, well, yeah. Like if I, I mean, do you, did you ever have those thoughts like early on in sobriety where it was like, well, I can still go to the party. Just, oh yeah. I just won't drink. Oh yeah. I can still do this. I just won't drink. I did it. I did it for the first like 14 years of trying to get sober. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can still do all that behavior that was my life. I just won't drink, you know, from, from age 24. Well, 
Yeah, from age 24 to 33, when I finally got sober this last time, it was all that. Mm-hmm. You know, I could go to the bar and not drink. I could be the D. I can be the designated driver. Yeah, it's fine. You know, it's okay for me to carry this pot for my buddy. You know, I can yeah. go. I can go pick up this for for my wife. You know, I can I can grab these drugs for this person and not use them. I can probably sell this little bit of amount and. And get away. And every time I did any of those things, it kick started the obsession. Right. Yeah. The because obsession kicked in. That's the addict telling yeah. me that that's a good idea. Yeah. For and sure. I, it's always the experiment, man. Like, well, that one went well. Yeah. Let's try it again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, remember how good it felt today. Mm-hmm. And, and then I'm back in fucking jail, you know, for me. And, you know, I think that with, with all that, um, I can definitely say that Jonathan would identify with, <laughs> with for sure back in jail again. Yeah. Here, here's, here's the trigger again. Here's the boundary line I crossed, you know, cause he talks about all those things in his story, mm-hmm. you know? What, and, yeah. yeah. Well, and he, like the, the thing was, is, is where we got this topic is, you know, he talked about, first of all, his, his story was incredible and I can't wait for everybody to hear it, but he, he talked about a relapse and he talked about how, you know, he, he relapsed because he had not set clear boundaries. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so after that relapse, after getting back on his feet, getting some sobriety under his belt, he realized how important it was to establish those boundaries. And, and so he did that mm-hmm. and today he's sober. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, like I know in my own life, it's been super, super crucial um, there's definitely people that I don't have in my life anymore because of the boundaries that I've set and rightly so, you know, like, um, <laughs> you know, I remember, I remember after I sobered up having a conversation with my drug dealer being like, yeah, man, I just, you know, I just got to stop buying them from you for a while. <laughs> like what? Like it's that personal conversation. Yeah. Like you were talking about, you know, like I had to have a conversation with, and he's like, yeah, it's totally cool, man. Totally cool. Yeah. I respect that. And then back of his mind, he's like, I'll see you in a week. Yeah. You well, know what maybe. I mean? Yeah. yeah. Who, who the fuck knows? Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah. but totally, man. So yeah, I got a lot out of Jonathan's story. I really enjoyed talking to him and I'm so grateful that I get to do this stuff. And so, I mean, he can tell it way better than I can. So what do you say? We roll into Jonathan's story. Let's do it. Without further ado, here's Jonathan's war story. Uh, How you guys doing? My name is John. Um, Today I'm going to be talking about a little, you know, about my, my, my drug addiction, but I will spend a little bit of time on each each little thing uh so you guys can get an idea of where i come from and how somebody like me even got started and i say that because i grew up in a military family uh i grew up in a very strict family i'm talking 15 years old and i'm still being told to be in the house before the street lights are on um and i lived on military bases for 14 years uh we moved from state to state Quite, you know, not too bad, but it was enough. Uh, you know, I, we lived in California. I, st- I was born in Arizona. Uh, my mom and I moved to uh, California. She met her then husband, had my little brother. Um, they divorced. And then she met my then stepdad, who was in the army. Uh, and they had my little brother. And 
we live living on the bases. I grew up differently than other people. Uh, with that being said, um, amongst kids, there wasn't racism. wasn't a bun. It wasn't like that. Like I grew up um, with friends, you know, of all walks of life. You know what I mean? So um, I didn't grow up in, in in environments like that. My mom was not ever a drug addict. She's never even smoked pot in her life. She she might drink a couple glasses of wine a year and that's it. And she's always been like that. She's never had problems like that. Uh, I never knew my real dad. So I don't, I don't really know what his background was like because he was out of my life pretty much, uh, before I was even born. So, um, I never, she didn't even really know him that well. That's a whole nother story. Um, but I didn't grow up doing, uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, drinking. I played, I was an athlete. I played sports in high school until my senior year. Um, even when my mom and my stepdad got a divorce and he got out of the army, we then, we, you know, we went from California, uh, Arizona, California, uh, Nebraska, Texas, and then back to Arizona. Um, all, all from the time when I was about seven, I think to, I think we moved there when our, yeah, it was, it was lower than that. It was, we moved a lot. And I mean, so we moved to Arizona in 2000, I'll say that. Um, and I was there, uh, for 20 years. Um, with that being said, uh, I didn't have, like my mom worked a lot. So she was a single mom for a lot of the time. So she was gone a lot. Uh, I did get in a lot of trouble growing up. Um, I was grounded and, you know, literally half of my childhood. And that's really no joke. Like I, I went through, you know, gotten some big trouble on a military base when I was a kid. Um, and I was grounded to my room for three months. So I was always doing, you know, you know, shit, but I just never did drugs or drinking. It wasn't my thing. I didn't start doing that. I didn't even get drunk for the first time until I was 18 in high school. Uh, it was my senior year. And I started drinking a lot, like any, any, most, not any, most kids, when they start drinking in high school, a lot of them continue to do it. Um, not everybody continues doing it to certain extents. So I never really was into drinking, but I did it for a while. I smoked pot for my first time when I was 18. Um, immediately I started uh, selling, selling pot. I grew up really poor for a lot of the time, even though my stepdad was in the military. Um, he was really bad with money. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Um, even with my mom working two jobs and him working, you know, in the, in the army, uh, we were literally still living paycheck to paycheck. And then plus when my mom was a single mom, it was really bad. So, uh, when I found an opportunity to make money, um, I jumped on it and I stopped playing sports. Uh, I had decided to not go to the college I was planning on going to, which was my dream college, which I had gotten accepted into, uh, uh, it was Nebraska university. And for what I thought was a good reason, I stopped doing that because I made a few hundred dollars in, you know, a couple of days. And I worked, but then I progressed, you know, we can even fast forward. You know, I started, you know, just like a lot of people do, it's that typical cliche thing. I started selling that, then I went to Coke and then, you know, meth and eventually it was heroin. And that's how my journey began. 
for a long time, I avoided doing any, any heroin or anything like that. I did Coke and smoked weed, but, um, that had already brought me up to a, a, a different level. Uh, the, it, they say you're a product of your environment. So when you step it up on, on certain aspects in the streets, you're also stepping up the dangers on both sides. Um, that I say that to this day, that was the most stressful job I've ever had was, um, you know, selling dope. Uh, I had to worry about people on the street robbing me or trying to get one over on me. Uh, then I had to worry about the cops trying to get me as, you know, jam you up as well. So on that aspect, it's super stressful. Um, but a lot of the times, uh, I didn't really start doing heroin until I got, I started selling, you know, a lot for it, which I eventually caught my first felony charges, which were, uh, I had seven felonies in Arizona, uh, a felony to is equivalent is the same charge that you would get if you, um, for second degree murder. Um, I had five of those. So I had, you know, they caught me with meth, heroin, uh, what they call the smorgasbord of pills. Um, I got caught with a pound of spice. If anybody knows what that is, I had nine pounds of spice. I'm sorry. Um, which they thought was weird because usually smoke shops have that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I, uh, what else did I have? I had, I had another one that, um, I remember what it was. And then on top of it, I had a whole bunch. I think I had like 200 suboxone strips. I had almost like four or 500, uh, subutex pills. And then I had all the guns. Those were the other two felony fours. So in Arizona, if you get caught with heroin and guns in the same room and they're not divided, say one's in a bathroom and the other one's in a living room, if they're in the same room, they consider protecting your stash at all costs, which sounds bad, but I didn't, I didn't do anything. Well, you know, I didn't shoot at the cops, all of my guns, I knew they were coming in. All of my guns were disassembled. If they were able to be disassembled, they were, you know, all my bullets were out of all my guns. It's just that little weird technical thing they had. So they were able to give me a, a more harsh, charge to add on to there in Arizona they'll give you usually double of everything so that when they give you a plea bargain they can break it down that way and still stick you with something so I got and then I had um I had a a small and then they also threw in a little small uh possession of paraphernalia for like a pipe and some straws or whatever it was um at that time my my drug habit had went from smoking pot and, you know, doing Coke and selling Coke to selling heroin, selling meth in large quantities all the time. And my, my drug habit was at one point in time was around eight to nine grams of heroin every day and anywhere from three to probably four grams of meth a day. And the way I chose to do it was not your traditional way. Um, you don't have to really go, you, you know what I mean? So uh, I don't want to trigger anybody by saying stuff like that. So I'll try and avoid a little bit of things like that. But it was probably the worst way that you can consume those type of drugs. And they would usually be in this at the same time. And when you do that, it does something to your mental. You don't, 
you're not you're not thinking about stuff. So I got in trouble. Um, that's the habit that I went to I went to jail with. Um, probably one of the worst things I ever experienced. I'm used to I was used to selling what I was doing, so I never got sick. So I went I don't know eight or nine months without ever getting sick one time. Uh, sick off of heroin. Um, so I experienced that for my real first time. Uh, and it was off of such amount. I remember sitting on the toilet in jail, peeing, pooping, and throwing up at the same time. Standing up and I'm trying to not get it everywhere, but at the same time, not get it all over myself as well. Um, none of that stopped me. As soon as I got out, I was on an ankle monitor which you would think that that stopped me, but I found ways around that. I eventually, at one point in time, I wasn't allowed out of the house from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. So my way around that is I had one way to unplug. I had one time I could unplug my, my box without getting violated and getting arrested and back, you know, going to jail. So I unplugged it one time, and in 30 seconds probably I plugged in five to 600 feet of extension cord. So at any point in time, you could catch me in an apartment, that apartment complex at two in the morning. And if you just follow the little orange and green cords, it would eventually lead into somebody's apartment where I was hanging out and you could walk in there and I'm still doing drugs with an ankle monitor on a pile of cord next to me on the couch or wherever I'm sitting and a big old black box sitting next. To me. Uh, so and none of that stopped any of it. I continued that kind of behavior in and out of jail uh, before I finally went to prison. I had already been in jail. Uh, I think it was that was my 13th time being in jail. And every time I went to jail was a minimum of, I think, 30 days. Most of the time it was three to four months. Um, a couple of times I caught new charges, but they dropped them. But I still sat in jail for four months. And then they would give me another month for probation violation. So it'd be like a five month. And so that went on for about 18 months. Um, finally, finally, the, the state pretty much had enough. And I caught a new charge, which is what I ultimately went to prison for. I was in and out of jail, usually for probation violations. Um, eventually, I stopped selling drugs and just became the drug addict. Uh, you know, just running around doing all kinds of crazy, you know, horrible stuff. Um, it's a lot of karma that you do have to pay for later on. Um, I've noticed the difference, but I've also noticed that once I went to prison, um, I changed. Uh, I didn't do any drugs in prison. So I didn't use Suboxone. I didn't use Subutex. I used the good old cold turkey. And I decided in there that if I couldn't stay sober in there, how could I stay sober on the streets? Because people don't realize, but in Arizona, statistically, there's more dope in the prisons than there are on the streets. So if you can imagine that, anybody can get it. It's not hard. They'll let you run up a $5,000 debt before they decide they're going to just get rid of you. If they can't extort you to get your parents or your family to pay for it, then they'll just but just get rid of you. You know what I mean? So I decided if I couldn't stay sober in there, that I couldn't do it on the streets. And I did, you know, I stayed sober the entire time. I didn't even smoke cigarettes. And I'm 
even now I'm currently still a cigarette smoker, but in prison, I just didn't. Um, ultimately that was what got me sober. I stayed sober for four years. Um, a little over 14 months ago, I fell off the wagon and, you know, lost my way for about three to four months. And my aunt, she actually has been to prison for a lot, quite some time. She got out. She's been sober 12 years. And she that's her job. She works with people in recovery. Um, she goes directly into the streets for the place she works. And she helps people and gets tries to get them sober, get them in halfway houses or recovery homes, whatever. Um, my lady, at the, she's my lady now. Um, but we did break up in that time because she had never dealt with anything any, and she had never dealt with that kind of erratic behavior because when I start relapse, when I relapse, I don't just do a little bit. I am, I'm an, I have addiction problems. So I don't know when to stop period. Um, I've overdosed eight times. That didn't stop me eight times total. Uh, this last, the last time I, told my mom and my lady, I don't think I have any more overdoses in me. I literally could feel it because I overdosed twice in that four months. And I felt different those two times than I did the other times. And the other times were way worse overdoses where I was, had no, no, uh, my, I had, my heart wasn't even pumping for 43 seconds at the longest, uh, at one of the times, um, that was what the EMT had told me, uh, so with that being said, none of that ever stopped me. And then when I relapsed, uh, this time I got help. I finished probation. I made sure that when I got out of prison, I finished probation. It was, it was almost like a, uh, if I'm being honest with myself and everybody else, it was almost as if I was waiting for the first time to be off probation in eight years and not have to worry about anything. And then not only that, but the biggest lesson I learned is the same lesson that you learn in every meeting you ever go with, go to. I guarantee you there's always going to be at least one person that's always going to either if they don't, if, if the speakers or whoever's running the meeting doesn't say it, somebody is going to say, stay away from people who do drugs, period. If you don't do heroin, but you were a meth addict. You still can't go hang out with people that do heroin. And, you know, I mean, it's just it doesn't it doesn't work that way. I know a couple of people maybe that it has worked for and good for them. But for most people like me, it doesn't work. And that was where I messed up because I was clean for almost five years. And uh, I was I had four months until my uh, five year. And then I started hanging out with a guy that I worked with and he was doing he did meth. And that's how I slowly slipped back into it. I did good all that time because I didn't hang out with people that did that. When I started hanging out with him within two weeks, I was doing it again and I kept it under control. At least I thought, you know, for eight months, uh, like I would just do like a little tiny bit and I wouldn't touch it for a few months. And then it was just like full force. I'm literally doing, I'm back to, you know, uh, consuming meth, the same way, because I didn't want to get back on heroin. So I started doing meth, uh, you know, you know, again, a lot. And then eventually it led into that. And within two weeks, I only did, I only relapsed back on heroin for two weeks. And I already had overdosed twice. Um, all that, all that new stuff going around, it's not the same anymore. Um, 
it it took a lot away from my life, the whole thing. I've been fortunate enough that I didn't land in a life sentence. I had three years. I did my time, got out. I have a career. I'm a, you know, I'm a journeyman saw cutter. I spent four, you know, it took me four years. I would say about, about three to four years to be able to say that I'm a real cement saw cutter. I can go, um, when I go apply somewhere, I make a bare minimum of $24 now and now. Um, before, before this, I had never had a job in my entire life that paid me more than $10 an hour. Ever. Because I always would take bullshit ass jobs. Fast food. Not that restaurants are bullshit jobs because they, you know, a lot of the economy is based on restaurants. So, but I mean, uh, like, you know, something that I can actually start a career on. You know what I mean? You don't, you know, there's certain things that you don't want to do the rest of your life. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you plan on retirement, certain things you just, it makes it harder, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. Um, but with that being said, it's, you know what I mean? Uh, I had to change everything. This time around, I've been sober 14 months again, you know, so I went to four and a half, almost five and then, you know, a few months and then now I'm back and it's been 14 months. And every single time I get sober like that, my life changes dramatically for the better all the time, all the time. Um, you know, I because I'm not being I'm not being weird. People that don't do drugs, when they see people that do even when most, most people that even try and hide it, you can't really hide stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like you do weird movements or you just can't sit still or, you know what I mean? You look like you smoked, you know, a pound of, you know, blood before you came to a job interview. You know what I mean? Cause you're doing heroin or whatever. So it's just never for me. I have to stay completely away from it a hundred percent. And if I have to give advice to anybody, that's the advice that I give some people is you have to get yourself away from people that do that period. And why, why, why test it to see if you're strong enough. I was just a dumbass and knew that I wasn't, I knew I wasn't strong enough. I just would let myself slip into it every time. Uh, so that's the, that's the most advice. And also is, you know, it sounds cliche, but making amends is, probably one of the best things for me uh i do a lot of charities type things you know what i mean my own personal things i don't go to like an organized charity and do stuff i do i do stuff on my own just because i know that i have so much bad karma that i have to give up that um that i have to get back i don't i don't i don't do i don't go when i when i give back to somebody whether they're homeless, uh, if I know that they're on drugs, I see them out of corner. Um, when I help people like that, which I do a lot, I, I don't do that in front of people. Like some people like, to, you know, there's people on like TikTok and stuff. They like to record stuff. And for me, that's, for me, that's not, that's not the gratifying moment of that because you're doing it in front of people. I think the best times to do it is when nobody's looking and you're not telling anybody. Like, I don't, the only person that ever knows I do stuff like that really is now when, what I said to you guys and my lady, I don't tell my mom, I don't tell my brothers that I do stuff like that. I just, it doesn't, for me, that that's not how, that's not the best way to, to give back. You don't do it for an audience. You got to do it actually for yourself to make that 
actually sink in and actually help heal yourself. You know what I mean? You can't do that stuff for attention, in my opinion. Um, not that it's bad to do charities. I just, me personally, I just do it that way myself. Um, so now, you know, my, my, I have my daughter back in my life. My lady and I have our own house. You know, I work. Uh, I have my own YouTube channel now uh, where I talk about my, my story and it goes into more detail. Um, and I talk about my prison experience a lot. It's a prison channel mostly, but it's really about my life as well. And I make sure I let that be known. It's about my life and my experience, you know, and everything like that. Um, that's another way I try and give back as well. I try and give people an insight as to what it's like on, on the other side, you know, and, most people don't realize what you have to go through in prison. So I give that experience in a way and I, you know, do interviews with people that have been to other prisons. And if you can stop that and stop it, you know, even one or two people from going back to prison because they see how horrible it is, or I mean, not going back, but going to for the first time or, you know, stop somebody, you know, get somebody help. You know what I mean? I offer that on my channel as well. Um, that's just my way of being able to give back now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much my story in a nutshell, you know, uh, try to keep it, you know, at a good time frame. So if there's other stuff, you know, uh, you guys can always check out my channel at, uh, AZ Ruction and also have my Instagram, which is, um, savage underscore affiliated. Um, I talk to everybody, people leave comments in my videos. I am always on there and I always get my comments. So with that being said, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed my story and I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity for me coming on here and giving my story. So yeah, that's it. Jonathan, thank you, man. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that a lot of people are going to get a lot from you helping them out and, putting yourself out there i got a lot from yeah it. youtube all that dude so thanks bro like what'd you think man oh, i told you man like, i want to like, want to <laughs> try and find a van get out of here gotta yeah. get out of here yeah i can relate with him story's crazy yeah he got he got out of hand mm -hmm. got out of hand after he turned 18 just fucking went balls to the wall as it happens yeah mm -hmm. yeah and I, I, I sometimes wonder if that restrictive life as a kid, like, has anything to do with that. But it's not everybody's story. Like, there's a lot of, a lot of kids that uh, have grown up on, on, you know, military bases that, that didn't get in that kind of trouble. And there's a lot of kids that didn't grow up on military bases like myself that got in that kind of trouble. Right, right. It's just so hit and miss. You can't, you can't call it. But I can definitely relate with it. Oh, yeah, know? yeah. Because selling drugs was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Selling drugs was it. That's that's why I did it. I was attracted to it. Yeah. It was attractive to me. And having money, everything else went out the window. Like, like I didn't want to do anything else. Yeah. Well, and he didn't go to college, right? Like, he, huh? he ditched out on college because because he yeah. made a couple bucks selling drugs. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, I'll just do this instead. Yeah. Nebraska State got yeah. accepted. And he's going to go, what are those, the Cornhuskers? Yeah, I think so. Oh, man, we're going to get in trouble team. if it's not the Cornhuskers. It is. it is. All right.
big football, college football. Big red. And so, like, you know, and then and then learning the politics of the streets, learning the politics of the prisons, mm. you know, going through all those motions. And, like, that's what we do, right? We adapt and move forward. Yeah. And, and the, the intention never was to become a fucking heroin addict. Right. You know, that's where it leads. Well, and I think too that like there, it definitely speaks to his his ability to recognize something in him that wanted to be sober. Is like when he when he realized he was going to go to prison, he decided he's like, I'm not going to use in here, mm-hmm. and if I can't stay sober in here, then I can't stay sober on the street. Yeah. So it's like there was there was always this part of him that sounded like he wanted to be sober. Yeah. Like he wanted it. Like, and and so you know, I I, I definitely identify with that that feeling of wanting it and not being able to do yeah, it for you sure. Know, just, just getting, getting to that point where you see it so clearly and there's no fun in it. It's, it's just hopeless, 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 yeah. you know, and, and really having that feeling and, 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 you know, he, he made that decision and, and he was able to stick with it. Yeah. And so when he got out, he was able to stay sober for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and, as boundaries go, mm-hmm. right? And and that was the thing, too. Like, I could identify with, like, like, there was no legal boundary that would keep me from fucking using once I decided either. Like, he's he's running around the entire com- apartment complex with a fucking ankle monitor strapped back to right, his house right. on an extension cord. And the people that he's hanging out with, like... We're still getting high with him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the fucking PO could come through the door. Like, like that's how powerful this thing is. Yep. You know, yep. um, when he, when I was listening to that part of his story, it reminded me of like the end, end days of me and Avery's using and like our house was being watched. We were super hot to the point where like the police department had a Wi-Fi connection that we could see on our computer. Oh right. shit! So, so like you, you could get on the computer, and it said Evanston City Police Department uh, <laughs> surveillance thing, and we're still fucking getting so high. much for like the flower van down the road. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> we're still getting high. We yeah. didn't give a fuck, right? Because right? that's what you do. Yeah, you can't. I, I I couldn't imagine getting sober and staying that way it's, when I'm that deep in the addiction, you know, strung out on heroin and meth and fucking running amok and running the streets. And then, like you said, you know, eventually it gets to a point where like you're selling drugs, doing drugs, and now there's guns involved as well. Mm-hmm. And that's a really common theme yeah. in, in the street world. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because like Arizona called it, you know, protecting your stash at all costs. I don't know what other states call it, but I thought that was a great fucking name for it. Like mm-hmm. very catchy. And yeah. Well, <laughs> it fits. Yeah, like it, <laughs> and know. that's what we do. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the amounts don't matter. What, what all those things lead up to this dysfunction, this disconnection and this disease with inside of us. And that's definitely the stuff he was feeling. And now, He's able to like tell his story and mm-hmm. tell his past. You know, he's able to to like put these stories into perspective and use them on a front on on the front line of the sobriety movement. Yeah, and, and recidivism. You know, recidivism in, in the prison system is huge. Like, mm-hmm. it's very very huge. Like, I don't know the exact number off my head, but it's like ninety eight percent or ninety percent or something. I don't know. 
I probably shouldn't throw that out there because I don't fucking know the exact number, <laughs> but there's a lot of people that go back to prison, you yeah. know, that get out and go back to prison. And, and, and so if him being able to like put his stories out there and like help people hear that there's other people that have been in the prison system that have been through this stuff, stayed sober in prison, relapsed outside or used in prison, relapsed outside or whatever the case is, is staying sober now, moving in a positive direction, able to share that he's got a career <coughs> He's got his family back. He's got a home. He's got a direction. He's got a purpose. All those things. If somebody else can hear that and reach out to him and he can explain, you know, this is how I did it. Yeah. You know, and that's what I, I dig so much about what he's doing now. And I appreciate that. Me too. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, as as uh, as we were talking about it, I was just thinking about how, how uh, extreme circumstances in using will force us into um, an adaptation and we will overcome and we are a very uh, we're, we're um, very intuitive and we will figure out a way to use yeah like he he figured out a way to use while on probation yeah. because that's what we do right yeah. and and in those extreme circumstances, you know, like I would never, I would never think of that. I would never think of to, to do that, to, to where, you know, like I can just plug this bitch in. I'm good for a minute, you know? Yeah. And, and be able to do whatever it is I want. And the thing is, is that we as addicts and alcoholics, like we have that innate ability when we're in those extreme circumstances to figure it out. Yeah. We will figure it out. Like to that end, knowing that we have that ability in us, we're able to sort of apply that to some good. Like I have found in my life that there has been some situations and circumstances that I've been in where I've been able to reflect on that and been like, I found a way to use no matter what. I'm sure I can figure out a way to get through this as well. Mm. You know, yeah. especially when it comes to like a financial situation, it's like, dude, I always had fucking money for drugs. Yeah. Like I'm sure I can figure out this financial situation. So, you know, being able to sort of at least apply that positive aspect to what was ultimately a positive behavior in a negative situation, you know, be able to sort of adapt that and put it into practical use in my everyday life is something that, you know, like I, I'll say that, you know, I'm grateful that I'm able to, to, to recognize that today. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. It's, it's just, it, it, it never, it never ceases to amaze me. Like just how how resilient we can be and how 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 much we're able to just adapt and yeah. figure shit out when we have to <laughs> yeah you know that's the power that's yeah. the power of the substance the power of the disease yeah and it's and and, and it's the power of recovery you know yeah. we figure this shit out and luckily there there was a there's a community here there was a community there and this community seems to pay a little better as far as I'm concerned, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I appreciate Jonathan being on here and, and you know, the, the things that he talked about towards the end of his story, you know, making those amends, you know, being of service to other people and, and like, like being present in his life and all those things add up to a life worth living. And, and I agree with that for sure. So, you know, thank you, Jonathan, for sharing your story and, and putting your plug out there. I wish you nothing but the best. So, uh, yeah, thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Dig it, dig yeah. it. So, and I, I love the topic, man. 
Yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing the, the story, and, and we were able to get a really good topic from it. Yeah, for show. It's a good one. For show. So I'm well, what did you what did you think of the show today, Willie? Well, I'm going to set some new boundaries with you. Oh, you're going to love them. Oh, <laughs> great. I don't know. I got nothing. Like, I I needed to hear it. I needed to remember that I do these things on a daily basis. That I'm that I'm better at it now than I used to be, mm-hmm. and that I have yeah. some some knowledge stacked behind me on this topic, and I can see that that I've used boundaries to get to where I'm at successfully without a relapse. And, and, you know, I've been able to establish a life worth living through setting some clear boundaries and, and maintaining those boundaries. Mm. So I really, really appreciate the way you said that. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. You're doing good. Thanks. You're doing good. I think we all are. We're, 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 we're all probably doing better than we think we are. Yeah. That's the truth of it. Yeah, for sure. So Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Willie. Watching us again. Thanks, Jordan, for doing all your stuff back there. Jordan stayed awake for the whole show. Oh, I like it when he does that. I noticed. So that's wonderful. Thanks, Cameron, for being here. And I think we'll wrap it out. Let's wrap it out. We love you. Love you. We appreciate you. You are worth the work. We will see you on the other side. The Other Side of Hell is a do-it-yourself podcast. For more information, recovery resources, and contact info, check out our website at theothersideofhellpodcast.com. You can help us spread our message by liking and subscribing, giving us a follow, or a five-star rating.